ಸಹನಾವತು ಸಹನೌಭುನಕ್ತು ಸಹ ವೀರ್ಯ ಕರವಾವಹೈ ತೇಜಸ್ವಿನಾವಧೀತಮಸ್ತು ಮಾವಿಷಾವಹೈ ಶಾಂತಿ 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 ಓಂ ಮೇ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮನ್ ಪ್ರೊಟೆಕ್ಟ್ ಅಸ್ ಆಲ್ ಮೇ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮನ್ ನರಿಷ್ ಅಸ್ ಆಲ್ ಮೇ ವಿ ಅಟೇನ್ ಗ್ರೇಟ್ ಸ್ಪಿರಿಚುವಲ್ ಹೈಟ್ಸ್ ಬೈ ದ ಗ್ರೇಸ್ ಆಫ್ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮನ್ ಮೇ ಅವರ್ ಸ್ಟಡಿ ಬಿ ಲ್ಯೂಮಿನಸ್ ಮೇ ದೇರ್ ಬಿ ನೋ ಡಿಸ್ಹಾರ್ಮನಿ ಅಮಾಂಗ್ಸ್ಟ್ ಅಸ್ ಓಂ peace 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 i'll chant the first verse of the drigdrishya viveka with which we started last time and you can follow after me i'll chant first and then you follow rupam drishyam lochanam drik ೋಚನ ದೃಕ್ ತದೃಶ್ಯ ದೃಕ್ತು ಮಾನಸ ತದೃಶ್ಯ ದೃಕ್ತು ಮಾನಸ ದೃಶ್ಯಾಧಿವೃತ್ತಯ ಸಾಕ್ಷಿ ದೃಶ್ಯಾಧಿವೃತ್ತಯ ಸಾಕ್ಷಿ ದೃಗೇವ ನೃಶ್ಯತೆ ದೃಗೇವ ನೃಶ್ಯತೆ as we saw last time this is a most profound verse it gives us a technique of realizing our true self you see in every experience we have the subject and the object the one who is experiencing and that which is experienced the one who experiences is the subject the knower or in the language of this the seer and that which is experienced is the object the known or the seen now it is a matter of common experience that the seer and the seen are different in every experience we are aware of ourselves as the knower as the seer and what we know or what we see as the object as the scene so the seer and the scene the knower and the known the drashta and the drishya in the terms of this verse they are always different and using this principle last time we observed the the text guides us through this process just like a very good teacher taking us from the from the most common sensical experience from our what we know from there to deeper and deeper levels of analysis so we start with something very common we are looking out at the world simply looking out with our eyes so the world full of color and shape that is the scene and the eyes are the seer in a very common sense naive way just look at it the way we experience the world and since the seer and the seen are different it's quite obvious the eyes are different from what they see and you go next deeper the eyes themselves are objects of experience that my eyes are open or they are closed or they are itching or i need spectacles or i can see very well 
all these aspects of the eyes are known by the mind. So the mind becomes the knower and the eyes become the known. The mind becomes the seer, drashta, and the eyes become the seen, drishyam. And the two are different as we saw last time. It's quite obviously they are different. As we go deeper, further, we find the mind itself is also known. After all, we are aware. I'm happy. I like this or I don't like it. And we are aware of this. This is the thoughts in them, our minds, our feelings, our emotions, our memories, ideas, comprehension, lack of comprehension. All these we are aware of as they come and go. Therefore, the contents of our minds are also something that we know. So they are also in the category of the known, the seen, the object. And there is something which illumines the mind from within. So that becomes the ultimate seer, knower. And since we are always the seer, we are never the seen in our, all our experience. In experience, we always see it as, as we are the experiencer. And the rest is the experienced. What we experience is the experienced object. So in this case also, if there is something which knows the mind, then we are that. We are that which knows the mind. We are that which shines upon the mind. We are that which illumines the contents of the mind. And the mind is known as an object. Through the mind, we know the rest of the body and our sense organs. That is also known, seen. Through the mind and the sense organs, we experience the world. And the world is also something that is seen, observed, known. What do we know at the end of this analysis? We know that we are not the body, we are not the sense organs, we are not the mind even, even the contents of the mind. And this is enormous in itself. It's, it's a, a huge revelation to us. Because what we think of ourselves as usually, before we reflect, before we take a critical view of our experience, before that, in a pre-critical stage, we regard ourselves as a body-mind complex. I am an individual, and this is who I am. This body and this, the mind within it, this is who I am. The boundary of the body, the skin, this is my boundary. Beyond this is not me. Up to this is me. That's how we, we, we think of ourselves. But this analysis, it claims to show us that we are not even this body. We are the experiencer of this body. We are not even the, the mind within. We are the experiencer of the mind. So we, the experiencer, the knower, we are these, the witness of the mind and the body. This is what we saw last time. And now we have, we'll go further ahead. We'll go into uh, the next few verses. Some of you are thinking last time, if it took one hour to explain one verse, we are not going to make much progress. But don't worry, it's not going to be like that. Some of the verses we can, uh, we can move much faster. For example, now we are going to do the second, third, fourth, and fifth verses. And we are going to do them one after another because what these verses do, second, third, fourth, and fifth, is just explain the first verse. What we saw last time, that is explained in detail by these four verses. These Sanskrit verses, shlokas, they have four quarters, four parts. First quarter, second quarter, 
third quarter and fourth quarter. And the, this verse which we did also has four quarters. The first quarter is forms are the seen and the eyes are the seer. That's the quarter one. And verse number two explains this quarter. The second quarter is the eyes are the seen and the mind is the seer. And the second quarter is explained by the third verse. And similarly, the, the third quarter, the mind itself is seen and there is a witness to the mind. That is explained by the um, fourth um, ver verse. And the fifth verse explains the fourth quarter that the seer of the mind, the witness itself, never becomes an object of knowledge, never is experienced. It is always the experience. So now we shall go into the second, third, fourth, and fifth verses, one after another. I shall read out the Sanskrit as always, and so you repeat after I have read it out. Verse number two. Those of you who have got the book, you can follow me. Nila pita sthula sukshma. Nila pita sthula sukshma. Rasva dirghadi bhedata. Rasva dirghadi bhedata. Nana vidhani rupani. Nana vidhani rupani. Pashyet lochana mekadha. So the first quarter of the first verse, eyes are the seer and the world of forms and shapes, colors, that is the scene, that is explained in detail here. And what is said here? Something very simple. Colors, black or blue and yellow, shapes, the forms in the world outside, some are gross forms, some are very subtle forms. All of them are seen by the eye. Some are long and some are tall, some are short. and uh, So all these different kinds of forms are seen by the same pair of eyes, by the same organ of vision. You may recall, we learned three things last time. First, the seer and the seen are different, number one. Number two, the seer is one and the seen are many. So here you have many colors and many forms, but they are seen by the same eye. I don't mean one eye, but the same organ of vision. And the third thing we learned was the seen are relatively changing compared to the seer. So the forms which we see, the colors and the people, things around us, keeps changing throughout. Relatively speaking, our eyes which see them, they do not change much. Now if you look at the verse, it's very simple. Neela and Peter means... Um, blue and yellow, sthula and sukshma means gross and subtle, rasva means short, dirgha means long, adi means etc. Bhedata, these differences. Nana vidhani rupani, the variety of forms. Incidentally, the word rupa in Sanskrit, it means form in general, but particularly, specifically, it means color. So, you know, one, the thing which we first see when we open our eyes, we say we see people and chairs and tables, actually we see colors. We see colors and we can make out shapes. So, all these varieties, nana vidhani rupani, varieties of colors and shapes and forms, pashyet, sees the eyes by themselves, ekadha. This is an explanation of the first quarter. 
meaning thereby the seer, the eyes, are different from the, the forms which they see. Now we go to the third verse. Remember, it explains the second quarter, that the eyes themselves become an object of knowledge and the mind is the seer. So let's go to the third verse. Andhyamandhya patutveshu Andhyamandhya patutveshu Netradharmeshu chaikadha Netradharmeshu chaikadha Sankalpayet manashrotra Sankalpayet manashrotra Tvagado yojyatam idam what does this verse say? Different characteristics of my eyes. Sometimes the eyes may be blind, some persons cannot see, or some persons, sometimes I feel that I cannot see well, I need contacts or spectacles, or sometimes I feel I can see well. These different characteristics of the eyes, of my eyes, are known by me. And what knows them? The mind. There's nothing, there's no very deep philosophy here. It's simply recounting our experiences and inviting us to reflect on our experiences. Everybody experiences this. So I know the conditions of my eyes. Eyes are open, eyes are closed, I can see well, I cannot see well, and so on. Who knows this? The mind. If the mind is the knower, then all of these, these have become the known, the eyes become the known, and the mind is different from the eyes. The knower and the known are different. They cannot be the same. And quite obviously we feel, we see, it's a fact that our minds are different from the eyes. Sankalpayet mana. Uh, I'll read out the Sanskrit. Andhya means blindness. Mandya means uh, dullness of the eyes, the uh, inability of the eyes to see well. Patu, sharpness of vision. 20 by 20, they say, doctors. And netra dharma, the qualities of the mind, the characteristic, characteristics of the eyes. Netra means eyes, characteristics of the eyes. Ekadha, by itself, the mind, sankalpayet manaha, the mind can cognize, can understand, can think about. Now what do you do? It's the same thing, not only for the eyes, also for all our sense organs. Why only the eyes? Ears. What, the, the condition of my ears, I can know, I can, I can hear well, or I need, uh, I think I can hear well, but everybody tells me you cannot hear well, so you need hearing aid. So the conditions of, of the ears are well known to the mind. The mind understands it, so the mind is different from the ears. And so for the skin, the nose, and so on, the tongue, and so on. So shrotra means ears, tug means skin. Ears, skin, uh, nose, tongue, all the sense organs. Yodhyatamidam. You can fit it here. The same goes for all the other sense organs. The mind by itself understands, cognizes, knows, sees the sense organs. So the mind is different from the sense organs. And by that, by that um, uh, reasoning, the mind is something which knows the body from within. And so the mind is the knower, sense organs and the physical body are the known. So the mind must be different from them because the seer and the seen are different. This is the fundamental distinction that we are holding on to from the very beginning. 
and that the mind is different from the sense uh, from the body and the sense organs it is not difficult to understand that's how we feel also the mind is something subtle the body is something gross we feel this though scientists and doctors will tell you that the mind is something generated by the brain but that's a different matter altogether uh, how the mind is generated by the brain and that that that's um, we are entering vague territory there but here as we feel it we feel that the mind is something and the body is something else so the mind becomes the seer the body is the scene quick examination what about the world outside is it the seer of the scene now scene the world is always the scene the known world is always known but the body and mind sometimes we feel that it is the knower with respect to the world outside but when we look at the body and mind it becomes the known and the mind becomes the knower now we go to the fourth verse this fourth verse is about the third quarter the third quarter of the first verse the third quarter says the contents of our minds are known they are objects of knowledge the contents of our minds are as much objects as this book is an object different from me and this fourth verse goes i'll read out then you can follow kama sankalpa sandeho shraddha shraddhe driti tare rir dhir bhir rir dhir bhir ittevam adin ad bhasayate kadhachiti bhasayate kadhachiti so beautiful verse chitihi means consciousness consciousness illumines by itself what does it illumine what does consciousness shine upon it shines upon the contents of our minds and what are the contents of our minds kama desire i want this i want that desire i want something How, we are aware that we want something now here i'll make a subtle distinction the distinction is this when we say that we are aware when we want something when we say we are aware of our thoughts what they mean here is not that you are thinking about your thoughts that's called introspection even when i don't think about it when i'm when i want something i'm also immediately aware that there is a thought a desire in my mind even without reflecting back upon it so consciousness directly illumines our thoughts our emotions our desires our memories our understanding or lack of understanding all of that is directly illumined by consciousness you may remember i had told you that there are three stages of understanding this the first stage is we should be able to repeat back what the verse says the second stage is we should intellectually understand what they are trying to tell us we get it and the third stage is it must become a living fact for us just as i say that there is a book on the table you don't have to believe it you don't have to intellectual about intellectualize about it it's a fact you can see it in the same way we should it should become a a clear fact for us that the contents of my mind are objects and consciousness illumines these objects kama desire arises in the mind immediately i'm aware of that sankalpa thoughts various types of thoughts 
sandeha, doubt. So he is so intelligently putting this. Suppose you don't understand, but I don't understand what this guy is talking about. I do not understand. This confusion, am I not aware of the confusion in the mind also? Yeah, that's what he's saying. The confusion in the mind also is illuminated. Suppose someone doubts the whole thing, skeptical about this whole thing. Skeptical about this whole thing. All that Advaita tells this person is, if you're skeptical about the whole thing, are you aware that you're skeptical? Yeah, I'm aware that I'm skeptical. That's all we are saying. Shankaracharya says, Yaeva asya nirakarta atmasa. The one who denies the existence of this Vedantic self, that, that self, it, it's his very self, of the self, the one who is denying the existence of this self. So, um, that this consciousness does not exist, it's as ridiculous as saying, if I speak and I say, I don't have a tongue. I don't have a tongue. If I don't have a tongue, how am I speaking? So, anything which we are aware of, that shows that consciousness is illumining that thought in the mind. Sandeha, doubt. Shraddha, a deep faith. Yes, I believe in God, I believe in religion. I'm convinced about Vedanta. Your conviction also shines in the light of the same Atman. I'm not convinced. Ashraddha. I don't have faith in this. I'm not convinced. That lack of conviction, that also shines in the same light, the light of the same Atman. Ashraddha. Dhriti. The ability to hold on to something. It's a great quality. In the 13th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, among the qualities which lead to, to self-realization, one of the things is dhriti. The ability to hold on to a high pursuit in spite of difficulties. In fact, that's a quality which leads to success in any, any endeavor in life. Dhriti. It's a quality that you display when you come today, when it's raining outside and it's inclement weather, and you brave the weather and you come to a Vedanta class in the evening. So you're displaying dhriti. That's the, the manifestation of uh, the ability to hold on to a higher pursuit. Dhriti. Itare, etc. All sorts of thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, whatever comes up in the mind is illumined by one witness consciousness. Chitihi, consciousness. Sakshi, witness. What else? Ri, modesty. Dhi, understanding, intellect. Bhi. Um, fear. These are just examples. Iti eva madin and such. All sorts of thoughts, feelings, emotions, everything which comes up in the mind. Bhasayati illumines. Illumines. Ekadhachiti. Consciousness by itself illumines all of this. So this is the third quarter where we first come across a mention of this consciousness. Then the fifth verse. The fifth verse is a very beautiful verse. It talks about our real self, the true self, what we really are according to Advaita Vedanta. And in a very poetic way. Please follow after me. No deti nastamityesha. No deti nastamityesha. Navridhim yati nakshayam. Swayam 
This consciousness within, this consciousness within, ever shining, no udeti, it's a comparison is with the sun, it does not rise. We, every day we experience sunrise and sunset. The, the sun of consciousness never rises, never sets. Eternally shining. No deti nastameti. Neither it rises, neither does it set. Always shining. There's a similar verse in the Panchadashi where it says, days pass, months pass, consciousness shines. Years pass, the body grows old, dies, consciousness watches, shines. The ages roll past, thousands of years, life after life comes and goes, consciousness unchanging watches. So it neither rises nor sets. Panchadashi goes further. This is yugas, millions of years, the cycle of creation, the universe itself, from Big, ba big Bang to what do they call it? Big Crunch. <laughs> yes, the universe dies a heat death. Consciousness is still watching. So that consciousness is not something that we talk about when we are talking about psychology or physiology, the brain producing consciousness. Not that. That is, uh, that's as far as the, the biologists, or physiologists, psycho uh, the scientists have gone. But this consciousness is fundamental. This is before matter. It only functions through the mind and the brain. So, neither does it rise, nor does it set. No deity, nastameti. Neither does it increase, nor decrease. Swami, sometimes I'm more conscious, sometimes less conscious. I have to struggle to remain conscious during Vedanta class, for example. <laughs> yeah, we do lose consciousness in, in, in sleep. So are we not unconscious in sleep? This whole idea of your consciousness always shining. I remember right here in this hall last year, um, I gave a talk from Panchadashi. And there was this young girl who had come from Canada with her parents. And she asked this question before the class. This whole idea of yours having one unchanging consciousness. Well, in deep sleep, when we fall asleep, there's no consciousness. So, doesn't it break down there? Let alone ages passing and death and uh, many thousands of years passing and consciousness shining. None of that. Every day we fall asleep and we are unconscious. Consciousness is switched off. Where is consciousness? Well, that's where Indian philosophy ventures to disagree. We shall see all that later. Why, that, why do we feel that sometimes we are more conscious, sometimes we are less conscious, sometimes we are unconscious? Why do we feel that? All those things will be taken up and explained in detail afterwards, in a few verses hence. But let me, it will just suffice to say that in deep sleep also this consciousness is there. The difference between deep sleep and this state is here consciousness has some object to be aware of. In deep sleep there is nothing to be aware of. There is no world for us. Remember, this is a subjective approach. So we are talking about your experience or my experience. Don't say that in deep sleep, Swami, what do you mean? That there is no world, there is no body, there is no mind. We can see the fellow sleeping and snoring. So how come there is no body? That's, we are taking an objective look from outside. But what is that person's experience? What is your experience in deep sleep? What is my experience? My experience is that I have no experience of the world. I have no experience of the body, the sense organs. I have no experience of the mind, thoughts, feelings, emotions. I have no experience of 
myself as reflecting upon my own existence. And yet, they say consciousness is there. There is nothing for it to be aware of. It's just consciousness. I remember there was a debate between um, uh, 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 philosopher, philosophers and scientists in the Institute of Culture in Gold Park several years ago in Calcutta. And they came to this point. They couldn't agree upon the definition of consciousness. So finally, somebody asked the neuroscientist, doctor, in neuroscience, in deep sleep, is there consciousness or not, from your scientific point of view? And the scientist stood up and said, the way we define consciousness, there is no consciousness in deep sleep. There is no consciousness in deep sleep. And the philosopher, a Sankhyan philosopher, who is also an American, Professor Larson, he stood up and said, well, from the Indian philosophy point of view, Vedanta or Sankhya point of view, in deep sleep there is only consciousness. See, this is the difference. <laughs> in deep sleep there is no consciousness, and deep sleep there is only consciousness. Consciousness without having an object to be aware of. So consciousness is still there in deep sleep. Mystics were aware of this. I was reading a, a Christian mystic, such a beautiful experience, uh, um, you know, the beautiful language, he says, just like in deep space, the blackness of space, in deep space, we think it's black, dark. It's actually full of light in, near the sun. It's full of light. There is nothing, for the, uh, nothing to reflect the light. So it appears to be completely dark. Similarly, in a deep, deep sleep, consciousness is there, but there's nothing to reflect consciousness, nothing for consciousness to be aware of. What happens in deep sleep? Swayam vibhati. It shines by itself. And in the waking state, in the dream state, that consciousness illumines other things. Atha anyani. It illumines everything else. Just imagine, to be aware of anything, we need an instrument. To know that people are there in the room, you need eyes. How did you know all these people were there in the room? I saw them. How did you know that the Swami was speaking? I heard him. So we know with the help of instruments of knowledge. So you know that all others were in the room because you saw them. How do you know that you were in the room? Don't say, I saw myself. You don't have to wait to see yourself. Even before you know anything, you're already aware of your own existence. So consciousness is self-illumined. It does not depend on any instrument of knowledge to express itself or to shine forth. To know other things, it requires instruments. Mind is required to know thoughts, feelings, emotions. Mind and sense organs are required to know the body and the external world. So the same consciousness, the seer, the knower, the, the ultimate subject, the witness, uses the mind and the sense organs to know the body and to know the external world. But itself, he says, swayam vibhati, it's called svaprakasha, self-luminous. Consciousness is ever shining and it's uh, self-luminous. It does not require a second entity to know itself. Bhasayet sadhanam vina. It illumines without any instrument. To know the mic or the table, I require the instrument of the eyes. But to know the contents of my own mind, Consciousness does not require any instrument. It illumines directly. So this is what the explanation of the fourth quarter, the last quarter, the one which is our real nature, pure consciousness.
Now, I will not go any further with the text now because a new, subject, new area will be started, a new topic will be started next. But what I'll do is, because this is not just a Drik Drishya Viveka class, this is an introduction to Vedanta. So we'll take a little break here and talk about some general matters. I started straight with the text last time because as I said, I, I wanted us all to have a taste of Vedanta itself straight away without any preliminary introduction. So now some preliminary talk. Some preliminary matters have to be um, discussed. The source book, the source texts of the Vedanta are the Upanishads. In fact, the definition of Vedanta, the traditional definition of Vedanta is Vedanta Nama Upanishad Pramanam. What is Vedanta? If you ask a classical Sanskrit scholar, what is Vedanta? He will say, Vedanta is the source of knowledge known as the Upanishads. Vedanta means Upanishads, the texts called Upanishads. What are these Upanishads? They are part of the fundamental spiritual texts, religious uh, texts, the scriptures of the Hindus, the Vedas. The four Vedas, Rig Veda, Sama Veda, Yajur Veda, Atharva Veda, these are the fundamental, the, the core spiritual, the scriptural texts of the Hindus. And these Vedas are vast, there's a vast corpus of literature. Most of them deal with rites, rituals. Many of us, we have seen in the Vedanta societies, the, the fire sacrifice which is performed, the, the home of fire. So that's, uh, that traces its origins back to the rituals of the, of the Vedas. Now, towards the end of the Vedas, sometimes in the middle of the Vedas, you find these texts which set forth the highest philosophical wisdom. So these texts are called Upanishad or Vedanta, the culmination of Vedanta, the end of Vedanta. Sometimes they're literally at the end of certain Vedic uh, Sanghitas, sometimes they're in the middle, but they set forth the highest wisdom of the Vedas. So they are called Vedanta, the end, the culmination, the highest uh, knowledge, Vedanta. Veda literally means knowledge. Here it means spiritual knowledge. There are many Upanishads. There are many Upanishads. But among them, ten Upanishads are of particular interest and importance. And these ten are important because some 1300 years ago, Adi Shankaracharya selected them for commenting. For, for, for writing commentaries, extensive explanations. So these are the central Upanishads upon which Advaita Vedanta, Vedanta is based. Isha Upanishad, Kena Upanishad, Katha Upanishad, Prashna Upanishad, Aitirya Upanishad, Taittirya Upanishad, um, Mundaka Upanishad, Mandukya Upanishad, Chandogya Upanishad, Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. Ten, we call them major Upanishads because Shankaracharya commented upon them. Some of them are very small. Isha Upanishad, Mandukya Upanishad is the smallest. Some are very big. Brihadarnika, Chandogya, these are very big Upanishads. Some of them are in verse, mantras in verse. Some of them are in prose. They are very old. At the, even by modern reckoning, they are maybe 30 centuries old, 3,000 years 4,000 years old. By tradition, they are ageless because they were revealed by God to the, to the Upanishadic seers. They are records of spiritual experiences. 
timeless spiritual experiences coming through the sages of the Upanishads, the rishis. They have been set forth in poetic language there. And the essence of the Upanishads was taken by Sri Krishna and set forth in the book which is the most well-known book of the Hindus, the Bhagavad Gita. So the Bhagavad Gita, the song of God, God here means Krishna, the song of God, Bhagavad Gita, is the essence of the Upanishads. There's a verse which says that the Upanishads are the cows and the one who milked these cows was Krishna and we got the milk, the, the nectar-like milk is the, the Bhagavad Gita. So the essence of the Upanishads we find in the Bhagavad Gita. It's a practical approach to the Upanishads. What do we do? What is the knowledge of the self? How, how do we meditate? How do we, um, how do we analyze our life? Uh, bhakti, jnana, dhyana, karma, all these things you find in Bhagavad Gita. But the Bhagavad Gita is firmly rooted in the Upanishads. So that's also Vedanta. There's another text not discussed so much called the Brahma Sutras, not discussed with, with uh, very good reason. Because if you think this is dry and philosophical, you should try the Brahma Sutras. <laughs> I remember when I became a monk, um, a novice, so the first thing I, I did was I visited the uh, library looking for books and Vedanta books, and I, I took the biggest, shiniest book I could find. That was the Brahma Sutras, English translation by Swami Gambhirananda Brahma Sutras, Sanskrit Commentaries, Translation by Swami Gambhiranji. One of the most dense books in human civilization. <laughs> I, I pulled it out and I asked, and I told uh, Swami that I've got a book in, on Vedanta which I plan to start. And he asked, oh, what book is that? I said, it's something called Brahma Sutras, uh, uh, Commentary of Shankaracharya, translated by Swami Gambhirananda. And so the Swami said, oh, that book, you won't go beyond a single page, beyond the first page. And that scared me so much that I put it back in the library immediately. <laughs> it's only after I came to the training center and I, I started, it, it was taught to us, then I started reading it. So there are 555 aphorisms, sutras. Sutras are compact sayings. Uh, and these aphorisms, a lot of meaning is packed into each sutra. And there are 555 of these. What are these? These are basically reasoning philosophical reflection upon the Upanishads. Upanishads are poetry. They are mystical. Now if you want to understand them, if you have got questions about it, you talk about Brahman, existence, consciousness, bliss, where is this blessed Brahman? You say the world is false. How is the world false? And what do you mean the world is false? In what sense is it false? I am not the body and the mind. I am spirit. What, do you, what is spirit? In, how, how am I not the body and the mind? The aim of life is God-realization. What do you mean by God-realization? Can you precisely tell us? All these things are discussed threadbare. I can see a lot of interested looks, but I warn you. First, let's finish this before we go into the Brahma Sutras. Uh, now, Shankaracharya, he wrote commentaries on the Upanishads, on the Bhagavad Gita, and on the Brahma Sutra. And... These Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita and Brahma Sutra taken together with the commentaries are called Prasthanatraya, the threefold canon of Vedanta. The threefold canon, the canonical texts of Vedanta, central texts of Vedanta. The Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita and Brahma Sutras. 
especially when we consider Vedanta as a philosophical system, the Brahma Sutras are important. So Brahma Sutras with Shankaracharya's commentary forms the basis of the philosophical system known as Advaita Vedanta, the non-dual interpretation of Vedanta. There are other types of Vedanta, different flavors of Vedanta, if you will, different flavors. You go to a shop, ice cream shop, you have a lot of different flavors of ice cream. So there are different flavors, different types of Vedanta, depending on the interpretation, especially on the interpretation of the Brahma Sutras. So Shankaracharya's commentary, Brahma Sutra Bhashya, is the basis of the philosophy of non-dual Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta. There were others, Ramanujacharya, the great qualified non-dualist. He wrote the Sri Bhashya commentary on the Brahma Sutras. And that forms the philosophical basis of the system known as Vishishta Advaita Vedanta. Madhvacharya wrote the Purna Pragya Bhashya on the same Brahma Sutras, which forms the basis, the philosophical basis of the great system known as Dvaita Vedanta. Nimbarka Acharya, he wrote a bhashya called the Vedanta Parijata Bhashya um, on the Brahma Sutras, which forms the basis of the system known as Dvaita Dvaita Vedanta. Vallabhacharya wrote the Anubhashya on the Brahma Sutras, which forms the basis of another system of Vedanta called Shuddha Dvaita Vedanta. And there are others too. Um, there is the Govinda Bhashya on the on the um, Brahma Sutras, which forms the basis of Achintya Bheda Bheda, the, the philosophical system of the Gaudiya Vaishnavas. If that doesn't draw any, any sign of recognition, I, can, I just, the Iskan, the Hare Krishnas, so they are rooted in the, in the their tradition is uh, rooted in the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition, which is a stream of Vedanta, which has uh, Achintya Bheda Vedanta as, at its core. So these are varieties of Vedanta. And what we are studying, what we teach primarily is Advaita Vedanta, the non-dual Vedanta of, um, of, in the lineage of Shankaracharya. Now, if all this sounds formidable, it is formidable. Let me not uh, make it, you know, uh, not, no Vedanta light here. It is formidable. So for that reason, the great masters of Vedanta, they wrote introductory texts. They wrote texts which makes our entry into this formidable citadel much easier. And these introductory texts are called Prakarana Granthas. Prakarana Granthas, introductory texts. What you are, many of you are holding in your hands, this book is a Prakarana Grantha, an introductory text. There are many such introductory texts. Among them, a very famous text is Vedanta Sara. Another text is Vedanta Paribhasha. Another well-known introductory text, Prakarana Grantha, is Viveka Chudamani. And there are others. Shankaracharya himself wrote a few. Aparokshanubhuti, Upadesha Sahasri, Atma Bodha. These are all Prakarana Granthas. They are all introductory texts. They introduce you to certain areas of Vedanta. They either give you a uh, bird's eye view or certain important areas of Vedanta. They are introduced for the benefit of the beginner. So... This is what we are studying. A few more comments, then I shall stop and take questions. There is something we should know before we go into Vedanta. This is called 
the sadhana chatushtaya. There are some preliminary qualities that the masters of Vedanta expect from us. Now don't be scared. We all have it to some degree or the other. But we need to work on it. What are these qualities? They are four in number. Four qualities which we need to keep our eyes on. One is Viveka. Second, Vairagya. Third, Shama Damadi Shat Sampati, a set of six disciplines, a set of six disciplines. And fourth, Mumukshutvam, a desire for freedom and a yearning for liberation, a yearning for God-realization. I'll repeat that. Viveka, it means analysis or discrimination, discrimination between the real and the unreal. Viveka, from where Swami Vivekananda gets his name. Vivekananda, this is, the, this is Viveka. Viveka means to distinguish two things which are mixed up. Vivich Prithakkarani. To separate, to, to understand two things which are mixed up, which come together mixed, to separate them at least in your mind, to know that this is good and this is bad for me. This is eternal and this is temporary. This is real and this is false. Though they come mixed together. The ability to do that is called Viveka. And certain amount of that is required to begin Vedanta. She should have told me, wouldn't have come all this way. I don't have too much of this very esoteric sounding quality. It's nothing more than the feeling that there is something to spiritual life. It's nothing more than the feeling that there is something to spiritual life. There is some truth in, in spirituality, in religion. There is some eternal truth, which if I can realize, if I can get at it, will be of enormous benefit to me. There is some transcendent truth. A certain faith, a certain feeling, a certain intuition, certain openness to which we all have it. Otherwise, we, none of us would be here today. So we have that. That is Viveka. The ability to distinguish between the temporal world and some belief in a transcendent truth. And if, even if that scares you, I, I particularly like Ramana Maharshi of uh, Arunachala fame. Uh, Somebody asked him, am I qualified for Vedanta? It seems so tough. And Raman Maharshi said, did you say I? Am I qualified? Did you say I? If you use the word term I, you are qualified. <laughs> you, say, you say I, that means you have a self. You are the self. So you are fully qualified for Vedanta. Who else is more qualified? So that is Viveka. The second thing is Vairagya. Once I have faith in this, then I want that transcendent truth. I want to realize God. I want to know my own nature. And I am not interested in the pursuits of the world. I may continue to do it for my sustenance, but my primary purpose in life is no longer seeking pleasure and power and pursuing the trivialities of the world. That can no longer be the primary purpose of my life. The two, God and mammon, do not go together. You cannot seek both, you cannot have both together. So, now a committed pursuit of the transcendent truth, of the of, if they promise us that I am the spirit, now I want to know that, I want to realize that. That becomes the primary purpose of my life. The rest of life can continue, and indeed it must continue in a spirit of sadhana. When Sri Krishna, Sri Krishna tells Arjuna, in the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, 
about the Atman. This is what we are studying now. He tells Arjuna about this. Arjuna didn't want to fight the war, didn't want to do his duty. When he's told about this, Arjuna says, exactly, this is what I want. I don't want to fight this war. Then Krishna tells him, now that which you were doing for worldly reasons, you wanted to fight the war for revenge against your villainous cousins. You wanted to fight the war to get a kingdom. Now you say you don't want all that. Very good. But now you must do your duty in the spirit of karma yoga. So that you are fit for realizing this, this uh, spiritual self which we are talking about. So world, the life goes on, but our attitude towards it changes. Now we are not pursuing temporal goals, worldly goals anymore. We are pursuing the highest goal, moksha. And the third thing is a set of six disciplines. The set of six disciplines are very quickly shama, a certain calmness and quietude and control of the mind, certain amount. I'm not trying to scare anybody. Then Damaha, certain calmness of the sense organs and motor organs. You can't be too restless. There are people who are very intelligent, but very restless. I met this young boy a few uh, weeks ago, very intelligent. And he was talking to me, but all the time bouncing back and forth. In his late teens, bouncing back, he can't stop it. Now, this is one, one way. I remember when we, we were novices and we used to go for scripture classes. And there was one of the novices, one of the brahmacharis sitting with us. He had the habit of, like many of us, we do, habit of shaking his, his leg while he was sitting, you know. He was sort of swinging his leg while he was sitting and reading a book. And the Swami who was teaching us, suddenly, very sharply, scolded him. What's that? Stop. Sit still. The physical stillness, not trying to, you know, go out to the world at all the time. I remember once we were walking with a senior Swami, it was at night, and there was a creeper hanging uh, nearby with beautiful flowers. And as the senior Swami, the Swami walked past it, and we novices were there around him, one of the novices just casually, unthinkingly, took the flower and smelt it. He didn't even pluck it, just smelt it on the creeper and as he was walking by. And the Swami noticed it, he looked back and sharply scolded. In Bengali he said, Eki, bhogi What is this? This is the sign of a, of a person who wants to have sense enjoyments. It's an, it's an unthinking reaction. Something is nice there, I must see it. Something is tasty there, I must eat it. This continuous going out into the world, this, there must be some control over that. And most of us do. We have certain control over that. So that is Dhamma. And then uh, you have Uparati. Turning the mind backwards. That mind which is restrained, it should not flow back into the world. Uparati. Rati means enjoyment of the world. Reverse that. Uparati. Then we have Titiksha. Fortitude. A certain spiritual toughness. Toughness is required for success in any endeavor. I have a tummy ache, I'm too tired, I won't meditate today. No, toughness requires I must get up and meditate. It's raining, I won't go to the Vedanta class. No, titiksha, toughness, spiritual toughness requires I must hold on to that, I must go to the Vedanta class. Putting up with the troubles that life throws at us, ignoring all that, holding on to our spiritual pursuit. That is spiritual toughness and a bit of that is required. And then you have um, uh, samadhana, meditativeness, settling down, having withdrawn from the world, 
settling down on God, on, on the Atman, on Vedanta. Thinking about Vedanta, studying Vedanta, practicing Vedanta and not doing anything else. Re reducing our worldly activities, engagements, so that energy and time are poured into this and not to anything else. That's the whole purpose why people become monks. The whole purpose of becoming a, a monk in the Vedantic tradition is Samadhana, so that we can withdraw from the world and settle down on Vedanta. That, that's the whole purpose. Then, Shraddha, a certain faith that what the scriptures say is true. This is not belief, not, not faith in the sense that you have to believe. It's just the faith that when I go to a class in UCLA or somewhere, a physics class, just that much faith that what the books say is likely to be true, what the professors are teaching me are true, they are not, they are not, they are not pulling a clever one over me, and it's likely to be true, and I expect to understand and expect to see proof of truth. That much faith is necessary, that's all. When we, when we go to learn anything, that much faith is there. So, Shraddha, these are the six disciplines. So this, these are the preliminary qualities which are expected. You say it's a tall order, if you look at our lives, we have all of that to some extent. What Vedanta tells us is we must cultivate, polish that up so that we can come up to uh, the required level, the entry level for Vedanta. I'll stop here. This was a preliminary talk on Vedanta, introduction to Vedanta. In the next class, again, we will carry on with the text. Questions? Yes, there's a question there. Yes, we will read that a little later. Basically, what we, what we call consciousness and unconsciousness are functions of the mind. There is a state when the mind is active, there is a state when the mind is dull, in, in torpor, there is a state when the mind shuts down in deep sleep. That's what we call unconscious. But what Vedanta calls consciousness, and what we call consciousness is the mind plus consciousness. You see, when I am seeing, I am hearing, I am talking, science or psychology would call these conscious events. Vedanta says, these are, the event part of it is a part of the mind. The consciousness is not an event, it's a constant illumination, constant light. So, what happens is the mind can shut down, consciousness still remains. So that consciousness, the pure consciousness, there is no unconsciousness there. There is no absence of consciousness there. In fact, if you understand this, you can see how people make a mistake. There is an increased in interest in pure consciousness among psychologists too. And I saw a, a, a workshop, a seminar on pure consciousness um, where they, they were cognitive scientists, psychologists, uh, linguists, computer scientists, all of them. One of the areas they talked about was pure consciousness and there were papers on that. And one of the papers was called, wait for it, the name of the paper was Pure Consciousness Events. <laughs> You're good Vedanta students, that's why you laugh. You understand now why the, 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 the term itself shows a lack of understanding. You're laughing, you understand. You understand that pure consciousness cannot be an event or a series of events. The event part of it is in the mind, in the sense organs, in the mind, these are changes. And pure consciousness is a constant, unchanging illumination, which cannot be called a event or events. Events happen in pure consciousness. 
They're illumined by pure consciousness. Pure consciousness itself is not an event. Okay. Yes, there's a question. Devin. Yes, that's an important point. The fourth verse says, the, the consciousness by itself illumines the various thoughts, feelings, emotions in the mind. Desire, karma, sankalpa, thoughts, sandeha, doubt, shraddha, faith, ashraddha, lack of faith, dhriti, fortitude, holding on to something, itara, etc. Re, modesty, dhi, understanding, bhi, fear, iti eva madin, and all such things are illumined by consciousness itself. I can put it this way, it's very subtle, but there's a point here. You see, the doubt which may be raised here, and it should be raised, is that why are you saying that consciousness illumines all these? Why can't you say the mind is thinking about the mind? When I say that consciousness illumines a thought in my mind, isn't it the mind thinking about that thought? Because the mind can do that, that's the thing. The mind is designed to think about things. So the things which it, the mind can think about are in the world outside. They are in the body. I can think about my body also. And I can think about my thoughts. I am having spiritual thoughts. I am having non-spiritual thoughts. I am having good thoughts and bad thoughts. I am trying to remember something. I cannot remember something. This is the mind thinking about itself. This is called introspection. What is mentioned here is not introspection. The simple test, test of this is, even when I'm not introspecting, suppose I'm fully engaged in some activity, I'm still aware. I'm not thinking about thinking, but I'm still thinking and aware. In fact, that's a much more concentrated state of the mind. And the second test, which the second proof which the Vedantins gave, why it is different from introspection is that there is consciousness in deep sleep too. Where the mind is just not thinking, the mind has shut down, there is consciousness. But that many people may not be convinced of, many people may find it difficult to understand. But just take consciousness as we experience in our day-to-day -day activities, just now. I can think about what's going on in my mind, or I may not think about what's going on in my mind. Even when I'm not thinking about it, still I experience Joy, sadness, satisfaction, lack of satisfaction, understanding, incomprehension. I experience these, which means they are all objects of consciousness. There's one point I'll, I'll mention here and later on. The great temptation by reading all this is to try to be a witness. There are meditation techniques where they tell you, now witness your thoughts, witness your sensations, witness your thoughts. And there are good meditation techniques. But Vedanta is not talking about that. The witness that Vedanta talks about is the witness whether you try or you do not try. Whether you ever read Vedanta or you do not read Vedanta, the witness is always the witness. It's not a created witness. It's not a witness we manufacture by effort. What they're pointing out is an existing truth. Uh, I'll, I remember uh, Swami in Uttarakhand explaining this, what we are reading. So he's explaining this. After having explained this, at the end of the class, he says, in Hindi, he says, uh, what he said was, 
Well, swamis, we are all, all around with swamis. So, swamis, do you feel that you are the sakshi, the witness? Do you feel that? And now you feel it, don't you, that you are the witness? And many of them nodded, yes. And what he said works very well in Hindi. He said, Bahut bade gadde me giroge. You're going to fall into a pretty big hole which you have dug for yourself. The witness which you feel that I am the witness of everything, which I try to think of myself as the witness, I'm thinking about it. It's something that I'm generating with my mind. It was not there earlier. The moment you leave and you face a, a traffic jam uh, on the 101, that witness will go away. It's something you're thinking about. The moment you stop thinking that I'm a witness, you don't feel that you're a witness anymore. That is not the real witness. Though I'm, I'm not saying that thinking like that is bad. Thinking like that is good. It's a good practice. But that's not the Vedantic witness, the real self. The real self is the self all the time. There is a witness all the time. One more question, then we are done. Yes. Since we have so many distractions when we are awake mm -hmm. Yes. In fact, we do take comfort. The most comforting thing that we have is deep sleep. The most relaxing thing. Our mind gets tired by thinking about objects, experiencing objects. The mind shuts down. Pure consciousness by itself is not tiring. What gets tired is the mind. So the hours of pure con uh, consciousness and deep sleep are most comforting. And those who are great meditators, those who can experience samadhi, it is said that the deepest relaxation is possible in samadhi when they can consciously, deliberately shut the mind down. Yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodha. And they experience the deepest relaxation. In fact, it is said that those who have experienced samadhi, they need not sleep. They, their requirement of sleep goes down. So, yes, uh, that is deeply relaxing. Last question, one more question. Yes. I am born, I exist for 70 or 80 years in this form, in this life, and then this body goes and this brain rots. And what continues and what comes back? Yes. Um, those questions will be answered. All those things are dealt with. The books looks deceptively, book looks deceptively slim. <laughs> it has lots and lots of material. But to put it very briefly, I am not born. The body is born. Even the mind is not born. So the, according to Vedanta, the subtle body, which includes the mind, it lasts, outlasts the body. It was existing before this body came into being. It is there right now, functioning through this body. As the body degenerates, gets old and dies, this subtle body will transmigrate to other bodies, to other lives. So the subtle body continues. That's one. But more than that, the subtle body is also continuously changing. But more than that, pure consciousness continues. It was there before the body, before the subtle body too. It is there now, it will be there afterwards. And that's what we are. We are not only not this body, we are not even the subtle body which goes from life to life. We are not even that. And this will be clearly shown uh, later on. Very beautiful analysis is there. And uh, what you said, I just mention it here. At the end of this text, towards the end of this text, a set of exercises will be given. 
We shall uh, later on read those and practice those later on. You know, wonderful techniques, a bunch, a, a set of six techniques will be given where you can, what we, have, what we are reading now, where you can actually get a feel for that. And those are very beautiful and profound techniques. But don't rush home and start doing them. They will not work until we have understood, firmly got a grasp on what we are going to study now. Once you have got a grasp on that, they will form that understanding will form the basis of those techniques. More of that later in the next class. Om Purnamadav Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachyate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnamevavashishyate Om Shanti 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 From the infinite has come this manifested world that is infinite, this is also infinite. Realizing the infinite nature of this manifested world, the infinite alone remains. Om, peace, peace, peace.